Hello and welcome to the Smart Cities World podcast, the show where we share ideas to solve urban challenges. I'm Luke Antonio, Senior Editor of Smart Cities World, and today I am joined by Chris Diamond, the founder and director of digital capacity building agency Unfolding, as well as co-founder of Sheffield Digital and the academic director of the Smart Cities Management Programme at Ziggurat Global Institute of Technology. So if that doesn't sound like Chris is busy enough already, we have sat down with him to ask how he has seen the definition of smart cities change over time, how local authorities need to reevaluate their functions to become more multidisciplinary and also discuss the ways digital transformation has to address digital inclusion challenges for authorities as a workforce without adding to them. So Chris, welcome along. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the podcast. Before we jump in, I'd like to just start by asking about your background, how you became involved in smart cities and what led you to this point. Sure. Um, so I guess what's led me here, I, I, was a, I started as a software engineer a long time ago, a very long time ago now. Um, I did a computer science degree or about three quarters of a computer science degree. Um, uh, and uh, dropped out of it. Um, I, you can go into those reasons another time, maybe. Um, but uh, I, I, wor- I was working in the industry already. Um, I, I learned to be one of those households in the 70s that my, my dad was a programmer, like, you know, one of the first generation of, of programmers, I guess, from the 1960s onwards. We had a, we had a TRS-80 in 1977, right? So we were early adopters of technology. Um, I started programming basic when I was like nine years old or so. Um, so I'd always worked in tech really, even as a teenager. And, um, I started as a, as a software engineer, a trainee software engineer, um, but really didn't like it very much. Was much more interested in interfaces. Um, obviously I was interested in games, so I did games coding in my spare time, but, um, I got into authorship essentially. Um, so CD-ROM authorship, um, what we'd now call ed tech, I guess. Um, but really sort of corporate training. I worked for a big, um, computer reservations company. Um, and I built kind of training tools for travel agents to learn how to use these, um, mainly CLI or command line interface based systems. Um, and that led me into kind of do sort of automating, um, document production. And so I was kind of already involved with those technologies when the web was commercialized in 1994. Um, I'd literally been to an SGML conference that IBM had put on like, uh, about six months earlier. Um, and so I kind of, uh, me and my brother and a couple of friends decided or just kind of fell into, um, building a, a web design agency in 1995. So I got into web very early. Um, and you know, we built the company up to over 40 people and had lots of blue chip clients. We did work for Intel and, uh, you know, Zurich, um, group of financial service companies. And then the dot-com bubble burst. Um, I decided to go back to university. I then did a, um, uh, I went back and did another undergraduate degree in interdisciplinary humanities and politics, and then moved to Sheffield and then joined another, um, web and technology company called technophobia. Uh, when I moved here, um, went 
uh, went back to university again and did a master's degree in, in international politics and global governance, looking at the way that the internet is governed globally and sort of worked my way up to be a director of that technology company. Uh, again, that, that company really grew from when I joined it in 2005, it was kind of a, a, a small, you know, digital agency. Um, it had some really good clients and it did kind of very varied work, but, um, it didn't really have the processes to scale. So I started the, the, and professionalized the project management function within it, introduced, um, agile software development methods, um, and, um, yeah, really trained people and developed people into good project teams. And we started taking on bigger and bigger projects in the commercial sector, but increasingly for public sector, did a lot of work with local authorities got very involved in local authority, um, digital transformation, essentially, um, as well as transformation of, of central government departments, did, did work with GDS. I think actually we may have been the first or one of the very first, um, external agencies to work with GDS back in like 2009, very soon after the alpha project, if anyone remembers that, um, and then the company was sold. It was acquired by Capita PLC. I mean, we built the company up to maybe 120 people at the time. So it was becoming a big agency. Um, but when Capita took it over, it wasn't, you know, I, I had no, I didn't see my future with that company. Um, I had two very young kids at the time, a newborn and a two-year-old. And I felt that they were going to grow up in Sheffield. They weren't going to grow up in a PLC. So I should spend my time trying to apply what I'd learned over the previous 20 years to creating opportunities for them here in the city of Sheffield. Um, so I, I left in 2012, um, formed a little consultancy called unfolding and started looking around for opportunities to get involved in interesting projects that would Im improve the, the kind of digital capabilities of the city. If you like, I wasn't really thinking about smart cities per se. I wasn't trying to improve, you know, transport infrastructures or, um, or even, you know, connectivity really. Um, so I, I joined a group of people that were building university technical colleges and was, was uh, involved in building two, um, secondary schools in the city. One of which, um, does creative and digital media as a specialism. And the other one does computing amongst other specialisms, um, which our eldest child now goes to. Um, and then in 2015, I co-founded Sheffield Digital, which is the association for digital industries in Sheffield. So it's an organization that brings the digital community together. So people that work in tech, tech companies, um, and you know, we, we, uh, work to network them, work to promote the sector here, um, and, uh, liaise with policymakers and, you know, city and regional and central government to imp improve um, the offer essentially make it easier for companies to, um, to, to establish themselves and grow here in the, in the city of Sheffield and surroundings. Um, and then at the beginning of lockdown, um, I was invited to do some teaching on an international master's program in smart cities. And I thought it's probably a good idea to do something like that as a, for a virtual university, just before everything's going to goes into lockdown I, in the last three years sitting at this desk with this microphone, I've probably taught in the region of 450, 500 students. Um, 
and about uh, yeah, 100, 120 of whom um, were on the Smart City Management course at Ziggurat, uh, which is a, an educational organization based in Barcelona. The course is accredited by the University of Barcelona, uh, and I'm now the director of the Smart City Management program there. Um, we're in our well, we're in, in the third edition that I've been involved in, the second edition that I've been directing, uh, and we have 37 students on the course from all over the world. I have 20 um, specialists that teach across the curriculum. It's a year-long part-time master's degree in smart city management. So, yeah, and in you know, alongside that unfolding, I still do consultancy work. Um, people ask me to contribute to reports or to research they're doing. Um, uh, and I, I help with um, event management and, and workshops and capacity building um, for local authorities and for other organizations involved in um, using technology to develop cities and citizens, essentially. Yeah, sure. I, it's funny that you say back in sort of 2012 when you start doing that work in cities, you're not thinking about smart cities and then 10, 10 years later, it's yeah. smart city management courses in uh, Brazil. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's that evolution, really, um, between not really thinking about smart cities and what that is and putting that label on it that sort of brings us together at this, at this point to have this conversation. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a, yeah, a nice sort of round way of coming, coming to what we want to talk about today which really you know we we begin with what it is to be a smart city how people are defining that you know what the taxonomy of smart cities really looks like today yeah given the events of the last couple of years and um the importance of people within local authorities um and across different local authorities of getting on the same page to be able to sort of begin to share knowledge in a more efficient, timely way um, to really support this progression forward into, yeah, in, into a smart city future. Um, but before you can determine what that is, you know, <laughs> how, are we, how are we defining it? Yeah. yeah so, I mean, there's a lot to be said for not defining it, right? I mean... Um... Yeah, you, you you end up obviously you know, I'm I'm an I'm an academic, although my academic route isn't maybe you know as obvious as, as others. But you know, academics tend you know we love defining things. There's endless arguments and conversations over what we include, what we don't, you know, um, what it really means, how the meaning has changed. Um, obviously, on an international course, that the meaning is also geographically distributed. So smart city means a different thing in different parts of the world it has different resonance in different parts of the world um it's also related to a whole load of other terms you know like we've had the digital city the connected city you know if i if i look back at um you know I, i've been very kindly sent um reports from the 90s um where you know um the um city council here um commissioned reports on you know what the impact of, of computing technology on, on the city um, means, you know, which we'd absolutely recognize as, as a, a smart city topic nowadays. Um, and it was called, you know, the, the um, it was impact of I ICT on, on the city or something like that. Um, and, and, and that included some really important themes like, you know, inclusion and, and skills 
Um, you know, do do people need to know how to code? You know, this kind of debate. You know, in order to really understand how to use technology, does everybody need to learn to code? Um, these kind of questions. You know, you know S Singapore just announced that they're training ten thousand public sector workers in data science. You know, it, I mean, it doesn't seem to me to be very, very far removed from uh, where we were thirty years ago. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure it's going to have the effect that they really desire. I think there are other things that um, public sector wor workers need to know to be able to do that uh, uh, are possibly more relevant than being trained in data science. Yeah, we'll keep tabs there. We'll see how that goes. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Keep tabs on how that's going and, and what kind of training it really is. Um, but yeah, I, I, I mean, you, you said it's a label and I think that is its, its most useful attribute, right? Um, it gives you something to Google. I mean, everything really, if it doesn't have a label, it's very hard to find. And if things are hard to find, they don't exist, you know, in, in, in our information environment as it is, you know, so incredibly dense and distributed. If uh, you need labels, you need things to refer to, you need, you need to have some kind of common understanding of what we're talking about. Um, but that said, of course, you know, smart city as a, as an umbrella term, means different things to different people and has meant different thing different things at different times um and i think it i don't think it has a particularly good uh you know a sort of reputation or, or or has you know good things associated with it in people's minds perhaps in in the uk um i think a lot of people are kind of wary of smart cities i think they see it as a as a marketing term that was was used by large technology companies a decade ago to try and sell stuff that cities feel they didn't really need, yet more things that they didn't really need or that didn't provide the value that they were expecting. Um, it's it's been kind of alongside, uh, you know, other other concepts like sustainability and or the eco city for a long time and they've now merged and do sustainability people like the fact that they that, that these things are merging. You know, um, should they stay separate? I know, you know, organizationally often sustainability is one thing over here and, uh, you know, smart cities is about technology and it belongs to the IT department over there and the things aren't really integrated. And of course, that's absolutely not what, um, you know, any of the best practice advice says or even any of the international standards say about how you should treat data and technology. Um, you know, it, it mustn't be siloed. Um, but it's very often the uh, you know comes under the auspices of an existing technology technology function within a large organization um but you know their expertise traditionally was was you know making sure everybody's pcs keep running and the network stays up and you know all the software and you know licenses haven't expired and that kind of thing is is as far away from really technologically transforming the way that a city operates and the way that um citizens live and engage with each other as the sustainability department is you know so yeah what what is the correct or, or or you know more more conducive organizational structure to allow these things to happen and to be a, a free flow of ideas and information that's technologically enabled um and does so with you know consciously with with um an understanding of how to deploy technology and what the implications of doing so are to achieve the outcomes that you want to um i think that's a still all um open for debate and still evolving you know there's not as if people sign on to the course that i run and we tell them what the answer is and they go away again and, and that's what they do 
it's it's you know very much a, an ongoing transformation with a lot of opinion and and examples of people doing different things in different ways and everyone's looking to see what works uh, and how it all changes so yeah I, I can give you some more kind of academically rigorous definitions of what we understand smart cities to mean which might help but no, that's the general kind of landscape go for it i think it'd be really useful because you know it's about how how to get from this point where you can sort of acknowledge it um and acknowledge you know where some of these agendas need to overlap to the point where you can actually begin mm. to integrate those workflows within city authorities and city governments outside of the constraints of of you know local government and and organizations um you know our, our, we have a quite a holistic view of what um, a smart city is um but it, it's kind of the 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 main distinction i guess is between three different um outcomes right so yeah we can agree that it's about how we use technology in 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 ways that improve performance um but we can do so with uh kind of three different intentions or there's three different kind of yeah um um uh in, in intentions for for uh for the outcomes we want to achieve uh in a given place and those those different intentions we define or we, we kind of we label as um the technopolis so that the, the technical city where the outcomes we want are really about efficiency we want um to reduce costs we want to make things um cheaper easier quicker we want to gather data and display it to people that need to know it and it's really about kind of the instrumental and operational efficiency of the city and how we improve that right we how we cut a lot of waste out of the system um it's things like you know obviously we we have lots of standard examples of uh of smart traffic management and parking and and things like that or but you know asset tracking um you know using properly responsive schedules for maintenance for example rather than just time based schedules so fixing things when they're about to break rather than when you know after an arbitrary um amount of time that's set you know on an average and um is not really connected to the particular context in which a, a part or a, a machine or a, or an asset is being used those kind of things right sensor networks tracking op centers data platforms that provide visibility to everybody who needs to know analytics ai um the technopolis and i think a lot of people associate the smart city label with that view that vision that that intention um but there are two others that are as as important right one is the anthropolis right the the human city so the, the you know how do we deploy um systems technologies and, and and methodologies to improve people's lives uh so this is about social care it's about health and well-being it's about education it's about mobility um it's about how how people perceive their environments um things like the playful city or the kind of the 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 um digitally um uh, activated city kind of um you know fall into this character into this category how can we how can we better inform citizens how can we provide experiences that allow citizens to experience their cities differently you know there's a there's a whole set of practices around that that we would say are also as important to the smart city um uh, agenda as the technopolis is right 
And then alongside the Anthropolis is the, is the Ecopolis, right? So this is the sustainability um, agenda. Um, this is how we do more with less. It's how we manage our resources. It's how we manage our um, you know, supply chains, localizing supply chains, food production, urban farming, um, obviously energy transformation, smart grids, heat networks, uh, you know, um, the, um, you know, net zero agenda, climate, um, climate action and, and response to, to, to climate change. You know, all of these, these things that are related to sustainability, um, a lot of them require technology either, either they they require new infrastructures that, that allow, you know, better and, and, and more responsive distribution of energy or, or of resources they they re require asset tracking um, they require monitoring and sensing uh, they require data and analysis of that data and visualization and you know all of this the same kinds of technology and capability that are required by these other agendas are required by the sustainability agenda and and the the intention of producing an e ecopolis a, a, an environmental city so, so yeah, that's that's our kind of shorthand way of thinking about the smart city in in terms of those three objectives, and um, the fact that they overlap. That that you know, we, you know, most projects need to need to advance the city across all three of those dimensions. So, how do you do that? You can't easily do that if the people that are responsible for making decisions in those areas are all siloed from each other and don't really see themselves as being part of the same movement yeah definitely and the the word that i'm going to come back to that you that you just said is understanding um and the idea of do people understand that there is overlap between these things uh do people understand enough about each of those individual elements and those different agendas yeah. to be able to approach these things in a way that is much more efficient right um Obviously, there's there's the decision making part that that comes into that. Mm -hmm. um, but before you can make a decision, you have to kind of work out a path to be able to get to a point where you have a decision to make. So, you know what what does that what does that look like? How are these how are these people, whether they're elected officials, people in administration roles across city governments across city authorities? Yeah. How are you breaking down those barriers? Um, and making sure that these things aren't siloed, but the more I'm saying it, the more it kind of sounds impossible. Right. <laughs> yeah, because it, it's huge. You know, how do you embrace all of that? How? Um, I think it's very, it's it's very difficult as well. Just, I mean, there's kind of a there's a cognitive part of this. It just seems too big to to really get your head around and understand. Um, there's obviously like a practical aspect of it. Like, okay, how much do I really need to know about this and about that topic? Um, but then there's also this, this sort of psychological um, aspect to it where it just seems too big. We're surrounded by so much. We're constantly, I mean, anyone with any kind of intelligence is, uh, is very humble about how much they know and how much they're able to know, given the, the, the obvious um, overabundance of, of, of information that, that, that exists, right? Um, uh, I think, you know, I mean, you have it's, it's it's probably more of a problem if people are not humbled by it, right? I mean, that's kind of that's what we call Dunning Kruger syndrome, right? People are completely unaware of how ignorant they really are about things, um, and and the, but the converse of that is um, kind of imposter syndrome, where 
you feel like you're not adequate, like you don't know enough, like you're 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 basically pretending to to um you know that you know what you're talking about or that you're able to make a decision about things or you're in a position that where that's expected and you have that authority, but um you don't really feel as if you have anything like enough information to make a decision or enough expertise to make a decision, and you're not you know. You end up being like, you know, George W. Bush that when asked this question sort of said, oh, I am the decider, you know, and that you just knew that he was making <laughs> arbitrary decisions with very, on, based on very little information or, or experience. Um, so, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's a problem. Um, obviously, you know, on, on the course, this is the problem that we try and address. So, you know, how we, we, we want students to leave with an understanding of the big picture uh, and, and enough of an understanding of each of the disciplines involved in that to be able to make sensible decisions. But those sen those decisions aren't necessarily, they're not like fiat decisions, right? They're not someone deciding that, yes, you know, considering everything, I am the decider, this is what I think the best solution is going to be. It's decisions about who to bring into the conversation and who to trust uh, and, you know, what opinions to trust and 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 how to bring everybody who's involved in decision making to a, a similar level of understanding so that everybody understands the implications of the decision that's being made in a given situation right um i think that those are much more powerful much more important skills to have um you know that obviously you know in democratic governance decisions are not made by fiat they're, they're made in committee but ultimately there is a um you know there is a um the decision has to be made and, and someone has to be be accountable for that decision so um you know th those people um definitely i think do need to have a really good understanding of all of these areas sufficient to be able to um you know to have a, a good sense of of the of the significance of the decision that they're making i think i think that the 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 bigger danger is the situation where we make um constrained decisions because we only make decisions in an area that we do feel comfortable about and the decisions we make they are then not compatible with with other things they're not interoperable with other things we could have included in our in our solution you know accounting for other people other users other other situations other things that might also be going on other systems that we're implementing you know these kind of things but we haven't because we've we've had to stay within our scope just so that we can make a decision about it because straying away from that is too complex and and it would take too long and we don't have the expertise and we frankly just can't deal with it um i i think that's yeah that that's left lots of of organizations cities administrations um you know in situations where they're, they're just constrained they, they they've now they've committed to a, um, a particular path that has cut them cut themselves off from alternatives because they weren't able to to give any consideration to these other factors other uses other other um audiences maybe yeah for sure so in in building out that kind of capacity when it comes to you know about knowledge building mm. where are cities at the moment and as you said local governments and authorities have taken this path um because that was the path mm -hmm. um 
to what degree do you think it's now possible to sort of start to break that down? And rather than say this needs to come from the top down, which is how a lot of sort of decisions have been made, mm-hmm. start to undo and unpick some of that and start to build up this knowledge from you know from the ground up. It's really hard to speak for all cities, you know, for one thing. I know my home city of Sheffield better than others, but you know, I, I know a fair amount about how they're structured, what their plans are, how they're developing strategy. But it's definitely not not evenly distributed across cities, and and obviously the other the other factor that we take into account um, on the, the the Ziggurat course is is context. So you know our context um, here in the UK is we're, we're retrofitting, we're we're transforming cities that have been long established and have large you know mainly you know Victorian infrastructure. We're we're retrofitting things into these environments. Whereas a lot of my students work in in countries you know which have urbanized very rapidly, they you know some of their cities have large um, informal settlements. Um, so, you know, just providing any kind of service to 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 those citizens is a priority. So they're they're more in a mode of leapfrogging, you know, figuring out whether or not there are much cheaper, much quicker um, solutions available now that um, that can be implemented and and affect a large number of people. Um, rapidly for a for a, a low cost, um, and and then there's the, the the third context is you know brand new cities, you know what we used to call greenfield, um, but are increasingly brand new cities in the desert uh-huh. uh, or in the jungle, but mainly the desert. A lot of my students are from the Gulf. A lot of my students are, um, are working either directly or indirectly with um, the whole Neon project, uh, and that's a whole other modality, right? Like this is from scratch. Okay, if we had all the resources in in the universe, what would we build for to build a city of the future? Um, so, so each of those contexts is very different, um, and so the cities within those contexts are, are, are very different. I think, in in terms of where cities are with kind of the transformation required to to build the kind of the capability, there's like a, there's a management capability at the decision making level, as you say. But I think there there you know that needs to be based on an organisational capability that just isn't there yet. And um, so if you think of things like public services and, and service design, right, we, we've, we've known, you know, and it's certainly kind of, a, you know, something that, that I, from my background, I, I, um, I feel I know more about than, than some other, you know, areas of, of the smart city agenda. But, you know, the, the ability to design new digital services, the ability to, to, to take an existing service and reimagine it using data and digital tools reimagine how it's performed how it's governed uh, the, the the you know technologies that that are that are deployed to to enable um, people to work um, at their best and to provide interfaces to end users and citizens that um, are usable that, that you know reduce the friction involved in in interacting with your council um, you know all of those things um, those are there's a whole set of complex skills and specialisms involved in doing that um, and so far, I think those skills are still, you know, limited within, you know, a, a small department within local authorities who, who also find it difficult to recruit because they're competing for talent with technology companies and agencies that can provide a much more interesting, um, environment generally. Um, but th- those skills are, are very, are, are limited to a small group within a very large organization. And, 
you know, the, those skills need to be distributed. Local authorities need departments and services to build the capability to reimagine and redesign their own services. And to do that, they, they need to have an understanding of the practices of service design, of digital service design. Uh, what are the implications of doing this? You know, what, are the, what are the possibilities of doing this? It's the same for content, right? Um, you have, you have you know, every department, every, every uh, service has, has uh, a portion of the council web, website um, and they communicate through um, email and, and, and social. Um, you know, the, uh, the, they, they don't have copywriters, they don't have content producers that are embedded in those departments. You know, th these are kind of, these are work instructions that come into a central content department that makes sure that everything is kind of reads the same. And uh, uh, what we've got is this incredible bottleneck. And I, so I think, uh, you know, we have a, a lot of bottlenecking around these, these vertical skills. Right, so these are these are real sort of specialisms um, that need to be more distributed across the whole organisation. That need to be kind of we talk about socialisation of new of new um, behaviours, of new capabilities, of new software. Um, there's a, a lot still needs to be done to socialise those to have so that like wherever that central unit is, if it's part of what's loosely termed IT. Um, that you know they are they are performing a kind of standards um and and coordination function to make sure that that all of the work that's being done you know that's distributed around the rest of the organization is being done to the in, you know to the right standards uh to the right level of quality in the right format and all of this kind of thing it just seems untenable to me that that, that it would be that small unit that has to do all the work because their backlog is massive and it, it, it has a big impact on how responsive the, the local authority can be, like how quickly can they change their services. Even if someone, someone points out an error, it takes days to go through the system before someone can change it. Well, they need to have the, the ability to be able to change it themselves and to, you know, and, but that also means they need to understand just the, all of the, the, the infrastructure, the, the technical and data infrastructure they have within the authority um, the content management system they use, how they integrate with their CRM and, and all their various other systems in order to take, to, to take advantage of the data they already have, right, as that's made shareable across the organization. So that's where we need to get to. And I think cities are kind of moving towards that. It just, I think it's, it's more obvious to some people within the organizations than others. And there's a lot of resistance because, you know, you're talking about retraining people or hiring in people into those roles, but that are completely alien to those departments. I mean, they, you're, you know, they basically would be training and hiring people to do things that just that they don't do that way at the moment. Right. I think we're still a quite a long way off that. Um, and, uh, you know, if you look at the international standards on, on, you know, smart communities, what, how, uh, you know, how a, a, um, a local authority should be should transform its operating model that that's you know one of the gr big recommendations in that in that iso standard is uh you know to, to create um cross-organizational platforms for technology and data but you know if, if you do that you do that so that it can be a platform for each of the you know currently quite siloed departments to then build their own services on top of 
if they don't have the, the capability to build services on top of the platform that's being made available for them, you know, that's wasted effort. You're still relying on like one department within 20 different departments that is capable of using the technology that's been put in place for everybody. Um, so yeah, those things have to go hand in hand. There's big investments in technology and capability being made on the on the infrastructure side, but you need to make equivalent investments on the capability side. Otherwise, none of the none of the other departments will will use the resources that they've got now at their disposal to change the way that they do things and provide better, cheaper, more efficient, more effective services to sits. Yeah, absolutely, and that, I mean, that, that's it. There's a massive human element to all of this um, internally in local authorities, and uh, you know. Right. That distribution yeah. of ownership and responsibility yeah. is one thing. And if you start to build towards this model that you're talking about, then it's about that appreciation uh, as well. That everyone else, um, yeah, maybe doesn't quite have at the moment for the work that some of their colleagues are doing. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there's that side of it. But then, it, you know, the, the other human element to it is, as you just said, building out those services for citizens ultimately yeah uh what they look like when you know when they land whether they're accessible for people um on on the outside who are going to be using them um both in terms of you know physically accessible digitally accessible um and keeping in mind that kind of digital inclusivity piece this uh, uh along the way of 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 setting these things up yeah, absolutely. And so, so this is why I think that that um, that whole Singapore data science thing is so interesting. It's like, you know, to me, you'd get a lot further if you taught everybody service design rather than data science. I, I think also, it's much easier to teach people service design. Like a lot of the people we're talking about. I mean, I you know, I I haven't I haven't seen who specifically Singapore are looking to train. Right? They've said ten thousand people. I don't know if they're, if you know if they're you know I don't know what kind of people they are, but you know in in a, in a lot of the in a lot of the um, departments within a local authority you know in social care in children's you know, adult and children's um, you know the, you you've got very non technical people involved in those roles and and you know they 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 promote internally often and even people in 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 leadership positions don't really have any technical background they don't really you know they're not you know they're, they're they're not you know maths junkies or 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 programmers that they data science is quite a quite a technical thing it's you know depending on how they teach it and the tools that they teach but i mean you can't get away from the fact that you you really do need to know statistics to be able to do data science properly um uh, you know and uh but but service design is about reimagining how how we do things how we present things how people reacts how we change their behaviors how we organize ourselves and i think that's much more accessible um so i i definitely think it would be i think it would be easier and i think it would have a bigger impact on the organization if uh you know whatever the proportion of ten thousand people in relation to singapore's um public sector employment um figure is uh that equivalent percentage of people within a city administration were, were taught um we're taught service design i think it would be transformational i think um i think a lot of people would start to realize the the process how you go about um reimagining how you deliver services and 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 why 
delivering services with an understanding of how you can use data to um to to you know provide better information to people at the point that they need it and to provide better interfaces to people trying to engage with a with a service and see what its status is and see what's happening and when people are coming and what you know what the nature of their inquiry what the current status of their inquiry is i think that you know those things those things make a make a massive difference and i, I think it would also it would also go a, a long way towards empowering those people in those departments as well like you know, there's you know this again this isn't the same all around the world but certainly in 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 this country and i think in this part of the country particularly the idea of technology and automation is just associated with rationalizing and job loss and you know just just changing changing the quality of people's work as well and i think service design can change the quality of people's work for the better it can take the burden of, of drudgery away and 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 leave space for people to really engage with their clients and understand what's going on with them and communicate with them better um and that should be put in the in the hands of the people doing the work they should be they should have an ownership and an, and an autonomy to be able to be part of that transformation an active part of that transformation so that it can be done properly and and they can get the satisfaction from doing it um otherwise everything's just done to them yeah absolutely the idea of of upskilling and the perception of the way it's communicated for some people that just absolutely sends chills down the spine because it it doesn't mean to a lot of people what it means even with the best intentions to to their employers and yeah. uh and, and to these organizations it's uh it's a very different thing and part of that is you know lived experience i think um and fair, it's fair enough and some of it is just a difficulty in communicating that in a positive way in some way there there is a genuine sense in which people's freedom is being taken away so what happens when when you undergo digital transformation is not just that you lose your job but that your job changes and and the the emotional resistance to it is um is not that it's something that's um that is necessarily like going to cost you right so from the from the perspective of the people that are implementing the change you shouldn't be worried about this because it's not going to cost you your job um or you know for those people whose job it doesn't cost um but it is going to transform it and you're going to be doing different things but for people that have been doing the same thing for a long time and and for whom this is a settled thing they have confidence and and uh, in their ability to do their job their job is something they understand they can do this it, it means the 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 whole part is, you know apart from spending the time at work and going to a place and doing the thing they don't have to worry about that anymore and they can then concentrate the rest of the time on on doing those other things that we talked about that actually provided them with freedom looking after their families you know planning things for the future working out what they're going you know what they're going to do next and living their lives um but as soon as you change something it means that comfort is now gone they have to learn something that's a stressful thing for them to do so suddenly they have to divert their attention and this thing this thing that was at the center of their lives that was solid and secure prided them with security emotional psychological and financial security is now under threat and i think that's that's really very undermining for a lot of people you know and i think digital transformation programs need to understand the psychology of that um and and you know people's confidence needs to be built up it's it's 
I, I've I've been I've been witness and party to, and I and I've been you know I've been hired to do training programs on, on a whole range of things. I mean, usually the things that I do are, are at, at kind of at more senior or leadership level, but lots of training programs to to to, to teach people digital skills. They they don't teach them the most important part of this, which is the the confidence in yourself to learn and the confidence to adapt. Um, and actually, on a lot of occasions, that training is counterproductive because it doesn't give them a flexible ability to adapt what they now know and are comfortable with to a new situation. It just gives them a checklist of steps to take and which they can run through. And if those steps don't work, they have no other alternative strategy to take. Yeah, that, that kind of uh, natural ability almost is you know it's difficult it's very difficult to teach but yeah. trying to to teach someone to be confident with it be flexible with it and even just to ask questions is a good thing um but look i yeah. mean we we started out by talking about you know what is a smart city and i think we've yeah. gone deeper and got a lot more philosophical than a lot of people would with that <laughs> kind of conversation I'm, ha I'm i'm happy that we've done it um <laughs> but uh thanks a lot for for your time and for for running through a lot of these concepts in a way that, that really makes you think. Yeah, it was good to talk about some of the foundations of what, you know, what I try and teach. And, you know, obviously, if, if people do hire me to, to, um, you know, to talk to their senior leaders or advise on things, it would be much more practical and, and to the, to the, the context that, that um, you know, that we'd be working in. But um, I think these things are incredibly important and, and you need to have this stability, right? In order to be able to stand and be confident, you know, especially when my job is basically being a specialist of being interdisciplinary, right? I, I used to be a specialist in this particular area, but, but now really my specialism is, try, is connecting all of these different specialisms together and, and marshalling a, you know, a, a faculty of 20 different people who work day to day in very different fields and getting them to deliver a, a program coherently. I need to be grounded in, in something. Otherwise, you know, I'd just be floating over all of it and you know, it wouldn't be able to tell what's important and what isn't. So it's really nice to be able to talk about some of the kind of, yeah, the, the fundamental mental frameworks that, that, um, that I hold on to, um, to be able to kind of sail more or less gracefully across the surface of uh, all of our knowledge. Well, that makes absolute sense. And, and I think we all need that almost moral compass to keep us centered uh, and not just focused on what it is we're trying to achieve, but also kind of remind us that how we get there is often just as important. So for now, I just want to say thank you for joining me on the podcast and sharing your insights. And for those listening, if you want to connect with Chris, you can find him on LinkedIn and you can find out more about his work, both at Unfolding and Sheffield Digital by following the links in the episode description. We've got another new episode coming in just a few weeks. So make sure you're subscribed wherever you get your podcasts and in the meantime, become a member of Smart Cities World for free to catch up on the latest cities news and case studies. Thank you for listening and see you next time.